On today's podcast, we are joined by a Medics Money podcast listener and ebook reader, Dr. Zahid Bashir, who wanted to come on the podcast to share his amazing story so that all of you could be inspired and learn from his mistakes and his good practice because his story is amazing. When I first heard from Zahid, uh, I was blown away by it. But he is an international medical graduate who graduated from Pakistan in 2003 and came to the UK with just £500 to his name. He's built himself a successful career working for large pharmaceutical companies and more recently working for himself in his own pharmaceutical consulting role. And as I said, he came to this country with just £500 and built himself up from absolutely nothing to a position where he is today. So we talk about the challenges of coming to the UK as an international medical graduate. We talk about why he switched from being a doctor um, in the NHS to working for pharmacy. And we also talk about his approach to investments and finances in general. So there's information in here that everybody could benefit from. And it kind of reinforces what we've been talking about on the podcast already. But it's an amazing story. And I'm really grateful that Zahid shared it with us. There's also some important links in the show notes uh, to Zahid on his LinkedIn should you wish to contact him and I've put a link to the ebook which we talk about is totally free Medics Money ebook uh, so the link to the ebook is there as well that you can download. Right let's listen to today's episodes and thanks everyone to the supporting our podcast. Welcome to the Medics Money podcast. My name is Dr Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP and my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So I'm delighted to welcome today Mr. Zahir Bashir to the podcast. Good morning, Zahir. Good morning, Tom. Now, Zahir's voice is a little hoarse this morning. Do you want to tell the Medics Money listeners briefly why that is? Um, I've been suffering from COVID. Um, as a family, we shared between us, three of us. Um, and uh, for, I'm really pleased to say that I recovered quite quickly, um, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I've got some nice IgM antibodies uh, flowing around in my system. Yeah, I mean, I'm just so glad that you and your family recovered and uh, commitment to the podcasting cause by showing up today with a hoarse voice. Um, so um, you've got a really interesting story, which uh, lots of our doctors are going to be really interested in because you uh, arrived in this country in 2003 from Pakistan as an international medical graduate with just 500 pounds in your pocket. Do you want to take us back to the very start of your career? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I you know I graduated in early two thousand. So at that time, I was interested in um, training uh, in or getting uh, oncology training, actually in 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 the UK, and I started working towards uh, passing the relevant exam exams, and I did that in early two thousand and three, and then came to the UK in November two thousand and three and did my remaining exams in the UK and started working as uh, an SHO um, at Ipswich and then Doncaster and then at Bristol, uh, so different hospitals. And always interested in um, oncology and hematology uh, because that was my passion from very early um, uh, days in the medical school. However, what I did find at that time, um, and 
that's nothing to do with the system, but just the way um, sometimes the training works within um, NHS that for international graduates, mostly you have to go through um, most of uh, non-training jobs first, more non-training jobs first as a trust grade doctor uh, before you finally get into a uh, training number. And uh, at that time, I thought, you know, is that something I would like to do to go through a torturous route um, to become a specialist? Or is there something better where I can still contribute to uh, the patient with, uh, you know, different cancers and keep my passion in research going? Uh, but, you know, without wasting too much time because we got only one life. So, and that's really resonated with me when uh, a couple of uh, podcasts ago, when you interviewed Dr. Emma Tenton, that exactly kind of story uh, was there that sometimes if you see that there is no box that fits you, then you have to make your box basically and say, okay, what I can still do with takes most of the boxes, but I can still lived life on my terms and that's where I started um, training myself into uh, different career options available within the pharmaceutical industry Um, and I actively looked into the clinical trial experience while still working as an SHO at uh, Bristol Royal Infirmary at that time and going out and seeking about good clinical practice and investigator training and different aspects of the research itself and that really helped me set the scene into uh, when I was being interviewed for uh, pharmaceutical jobs to know exactly what kind of job I want to go to and I then started um, working for a company um, in Hertfordshire at that time and then moved to GSK um, and then moved into clinical research after that and then, yeah, it's gone from strength to strength um, since then. And then about six years ago, again, I decided that, you know, can I be more productive with my time, with my experience in uh, as a medic, as well as within the pharmaceutical industry. And I thought, you know, I started my own consultancy business at that time. And again, um, working for, for myself and working for different clients working on cutting edge uh, technologies like CAR-T therapies, as well as uh, some very new immunotherapy treatments available uh, or being developed uh, for patients with different malignancies. And yeah, it's been um, really fortunate that um, that it has gone from strength to strength again, and my consultancy now is very successful. So, and, um, and since then, I also completed my CCT in pharmaceutical medicine. So I don't know whether many uh, listeners will be aware of that, that pharmaceutical medicine on its own is a recognized speciality. So you can do um, a CCT, even if you got a CCT already, if you got MRCGP or any other speciality, you can still do that. And if you don't, if you have done your foundation years, then you can enroll into the pharmaceutical medicine as a speciality and almost every single company um, out there sport the physician's training and then you can learn broadly about different uh, aspects of the medicine regulation uh, the drug safety part medicine development um, 
interpersonal management. So it's very well thought of curriculum um, uh, in conjunction with um, GMC that has been developed. So yes, yeah, been um, and the companies will support you in training, and then you can move into different roles and find the areas where you would you like the most. So and you know I find it really um, nice in that sense that you know one of the thing again which I did not like when I was uh, training as junior doctor. I hate working at week of nights basically because I you know it was very difficult for me to sleep during day. And that having that uh, work-life balance of where I can, um, you know, don't have to do those bits and still uh, not to jeopardize the patient uh, care when I'm kind of sleep deprived. Um, so it's again knowing uh, what works best for you as a person and what makes us as a good doctors and you can still do those aspects. And another thing which I did during, an, at least in earlier part of my career, that I still uh, did honorary clinics at Hammersmith Hospital. So I used to do once a week because I still wanted to be stay in contact with my patients and learn about you know, um, the patient care. So uh, and my companies, wherever I worked for at that time, really supported me, releasing me for a day to do clinics. So you know, one of the aspects which always uh, the doctors worry about that will I lose contact with my patients? No, you can actually manage that uh, effectively if you want to until such time comes that you think, okay, it's, um, it's too much. For example, for me, once I got my CCT, then it was difficult for me to uh, collect the evidence for revalidation into uh, in the direct patient care as well when I wasn't working directly for NHS. So that for me in 2015 was a um, kind of uh, a point where I had to make a clean break. But other than that, you know, I know many um, colleagues who still do clinics and um, I know many of the uh, colleagues and a uh, few of my trainees uh, who I supervise at the moment um, went back to NHS during the COVID time to support that. So, you know, we never, you never stop being a doctor. You just use your uh, medical knowledge and skills in a different way. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it's something that a lot of people worry about when they think about switching to pharma is that you're going to miss or lose that direct patient contact. But what you're saying is that you've managed to actually maintain that direct patient contract uh, contact. And uh, I think, uh, you know, training is long and arduous. And I think lots of people will resonate exactly with the reasons why you decided uh, to switch into pharma uh, and now doing your own uh, consultancy. It sounds like um, your companies uh, or that you've worked for have been really supportive. I mean, what's, what's the best way for someone thinking about switching to pharma to, to get started? How does it work? So um, fortunately, uh, the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine a few years ago uh, started a sport program for the new uh, NHS medics. So uh, if anyone interested in, um, you know, can contact and I can put some of the links uh, at the end in the show notes and which you can share with uh, with other colleagues um, out there that the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine do provide the mentorship support and myself included, many other physicians have been signed up for that. So essentially, um, for example, if you are interested in, you will contact the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine and then depending on your interest, they will identify 
me or someone like you know uh, other person who would be able to talk you through okay what kind of different kind of roles are available for example in broad category there are three kind of roles uh, for physicians uh, available within the pharmaceutical industry one is um, called typical medical affair role where you work with approved drugs and work on the the medical messaging making sure the interpretation and application of the evidence generated from registration clinical trial is appropriate so the marketing teams and the sales teams are using uh, the true reflection of the efficacy and the safety data and how to safely use medicines uh, within the NHS. So that's one kind of role available. It's called medical affairs. The other roles are called drug safety, where you are kind of much more closer to looking at the adverse event reports coming through either from the post-marketing setting, so reported by doctors and pharmacists and the patients, or the adverse events um, reports generated during the clinical trial. So you're looking very closely and making sense of you know, why um, uh, the patient is behaving in a certain way, whether what is the relationship with the drug, how to manage that effectively. So that's very interesting if someone is interested in science. And the third one is the typical clinical research role where either you work in the first in man studies or like later on either randomized or non-randomized clinical trials so that's called clinical development so broadly these are the three different kind of roles available for the medics so depending on your interest for example my main area of interest is in clinical development so if someone is interested in moving into clinical development they might uh, contact me faculty of pharmaceutical medicine and say you know dr x would like to speak with you would you find some time to mentor them available and then i will look at their cv take you through um, different roles available and how to apply for it so there is and then hopefully prepare for the interview as well and then get you then it's up to you when in the interview how to um, to do but at least you uh, you have more um, hand holding approach of what different things are available for us so that's option is there for physicians and I'm, I'm more than happy to be contacted via LinkedIn directly if anyone is interested in that. On DoctorsNet as well, there is a, a forum for pharmaceutical physicians. So if you, uh, if someone is interested and you will uh, you can first search by the thread for different pharma roles available. And again, people like myself and few other colleagues who've been in the industry for you know 10 plus years, they're more than happy to either advice on the thread itself or speak again via email or in person to walk you through different roles. So compared to when I started uh, about you know, 15, 16 years ago, and things have moved on and there's lots more support available for the new physicians to move into pharma. Awesome. Uh, we'll definitely drop those links in the show notes. And that's really kind of you to help uh, help anyone that's interested. So we'll drop those links in the show notes, if that's all right. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned doctors.net, because I think that's how you found Medic's Money when you read 
our free ebook there, which uh, resonated with you for many reasons, as we're about to discuss. Um, but uh, I think the main reason was because you mentioned to me uh, that when you came to this country in 2003 as an international medical graduate, you just arrived with 500 pounds uh, in your pocket. And um, as you may or may not know, uh, I, I, I had more than 500 pounds when I started, but I had a massive student loan debt. I was the first in my in my family to go to university, uh, had no financial support. So I was about 85 grand down, so minus 85. So you started with plus 500, but that's tricky. Uh, me, minus 500. Uh, and that taught you some really good financial lessons. I wondered if you wanted to talk a bit more about that and uh, the ebook. So the first ebook, I mean, uh, first I would say, Tom, that this has been a, a fantastic um, initiative by yourself and Ed to provide the medics because, you know, it's, there's nothing out there like this uh, in the UK, at least, for the physician. So you would hope, you know, for from the layperson's perspective that, you know, we, okay, we earn very good money and got security job, but no one understand that how hard you have worked on that treadmill of, you know, from, you know, doing your GCSEs and then from that and then, um, then basically going into the university and going to the medical school and doing and then doing the training and doing weeks of nights. So basically you are in that treadmill. So there is no financial education anywhere built into that. And, and suddenly you become a doctor, start your first job and realize that you are under a massive debt to start with. And like yourself, you know, very humble beginning. I was fortunate that I did not have um, student loan. And one of the reasons was that, um, you know, when I was in medical school uh, in Pakistan, I deliberately you know, tried to avoid that. I, you know, I didn't want to be in debt uh, for whatever reason. Um, so I used to teach in the evenings to A-level students and GCSE students and, you know, earn lots of money just to support my, um, you know, education in medical school. So that's one, that sacrifice wasn't easy, but you have to make those uh, choices and sacrifices. Uh, but when, um, when I did um, uh, came to UK, one of the things which, which comes, you know, and you don't uh, want to um, wish hardship on anyone, but one of the things you learn is that when you go through the hardship, is that living within your means, so one of the things which does help and from your story and your book and speaking to lots of other doctors who have gone through a similar journey, it does help that uh, being able to survive within your mean and not to go through that consumption culture does help you to cut your corners and survive with that. And that is the biggest thing that helps. Uh, from me personally and reading your book exactly, uh, doing the budgeting properly. Uh, everything in that book resonated with me because I, you know, I, I wish I had read it you know, uh, 17 years ago. And I'm really, I think um, for all the junior doctors or even you know, the people uh, who are younger than us, you know, this, everything in there is worth reading three, four times and making sure you apply into your day-to-day um, -day life and you know this is those are the simple things which are boring they are not going to make big news is 
they're not going to make you overnight success, but overnight success takes you know, 10, 15 years in making anyway. So um, without chasing the big numbers, getting the simple things right, and your story is, you know, success is in its own right, Tom, that um, starting from minus 85,000 to, you know, to get into positive is the, it's the best thing um, and a big achievement. And then you can then start building from that. So from, from my perspective, um, one thing which um, to share my story was what really helped again was to, to live within your means, basically. And then you start build, uh, building from, from there onward. Um, because sometimes it's easy to get into that lifestyle inflation uh, where you even if you're getting the salary and income rises, it kind of goes up. Your expenses go with that. And you're never um, able to have that delta between your savings and outgoings basically and it doesn't matter how much you earn if you earn million and then spend with million and one uh, pound you're still in a negative um, and that's where um, it's very important to you and then um, to make sure that you educate yourself and learn about um, investment and doing the boring simple stuff right basically um, and then after that uh, as english old english proverb goes that you know you look after pennies and all will take care of themselves um it's never been true in that sense yeah i mean absolutely I, I totally agree with what you said there i think you could sum up what you're saying by basically saying spend less than you earn and um that is very very easy to say uh, but in incredibly hard to do and uh, you mentioned that some doctors can suffer with lifestyle inflation i mean do you think in a kind of weird way that is easier for people like me and you who started with nothing and were for i mean i was forced to learn about my finances right uh, sounds like you were too do you think in a weird kind of way that puts us in a long-term better position because we're used to living within our means. And so once we've cleared our debt uh, and we've got this, you know, really tight financial control, uh, when you do get a nice job, suddenly you're like, hmm, okay, fine. And then, you know, that's where investing comes in. Do you think in a weird kind of way, starting from nothing helps us or, or don't really buy into that? I mean, uh, neither of us know anything otherwise, right? So if we were to live our life and, born with a silver spoon um, might be able to share a different story so you know so we can only share our own story right where we, where we are however as i said earlier i wouldn't wish um to you know any hardship on anyone you know if you can avoid it but as a parent one thing um uh, which uh, kind of falls on us i mean one of the best book i read um um, on finances was uh, Millionaire Next Door, quite old book, written in 1996 um, by Thomas J. Stanley. And it's everything which is there still holds true. And one of the things was that in America at that time, and they did that research, was that most of millionaires were first-generation millionaires. So it's for people like us who started from humble beginning, invested in their um, businesses in their life, in their career, and then grew from that. However, uh, one of the things as old Chinese proverb goes that, you know, the wealth only lasts three generations. 
So if you do not pass that education and uh, the way to manage finances to the next generation. So for example, if either of us um, having gone through that, pass this consumption culture to our children, then we are setting them into that negative spiral, which we ourselves avoided because we didn't have any choice. So the one thing we could do, uh, obviously we can't turn our own life's clock back and do it differently, but we can, for the next generation, we teach them again, we give them the best quality of life and education which we can afford, but impress on our children and next generation the importance of hard work. I mean, uh, one thing I always talk to my children, you know, my son is 12 and daughter is eight, that it doesn't serve to be intelligent, it serves to be hardworking. So if you are hardworking, you always trump um, your smartness, basically, and that you compensate for those efforts. So I would say um, even um, to our colleagues out there who've been fortunate to be supported by their parents in, term in terms of education and having no debts, you know, you are in a more you know, privileged position, make sure this is used to your advantage for your future self rather than um, you know being as a negative and dragging you uh, from the financial freedom because one of the thing again uh, I love about this podcast and your interviews that the fire doesn't mean that we stop working is fire is that gives us the independence of do things which we love to do but on our own terms that I want to be in a position and I'm fortunate now to be in a position where I want to work because I love my work rather yeah. than, and uh, same thing, um, I listen to your podcast and say how much you enjoy now doing your GP, GP job after your three to four days and having ability to spend a day with your children and do things you like and be more energized rather than going into that treadmill of working every day yeah uh, very hard yeah. yeah i mean we're trying out um lots of proverbs and cliches you already did the pennies and the pounds one so i won't do that but i think uh what i found is that money doesn't buy you happiness but it gives you choices and exactly. you know those choices i mean i take my kids to school two days a week now and i literally feel like i've won the lottery because i just love it and i pick them up uh and and that would not be possible if I hadn't managed my finances properly. And, uh, you know, to a certain extent, uh, good financial management allowed me to take a risk and start Medic's Money because if I wasn't in a good financial position myself, no way could I drop two days and take a speculative uh, punt on Medic's Money and helping out our colleagues. So I think that's really interesting. And, and yeah, if you are from money and you have loads of money, the game is exactly the same for you, um, maybe even a bit harder because you've got, you've got to learn what we've learned um, in a kind of difficult way. Um, now you mentioned your two things I want to catch up on, conscious that your voice is uh, ravaged by COVID, <laughs> is um, the first one, you mentioned your kids. Now this is something that I kind of worry about uh, a bit because my kids are a bit younger than you, uh, yours, uh, my oldest is six. But um, how do you, uh, you know, impart good financial discipline on them because I, I definitely feel that coming from nothing, I'm not going to say it helped me, but it definitely helps me now because uh, I've developed the good habits that were necessary. 
how how can you train your kids to uh, as you said in the million next next door the wealth only lasts three generations so how can you sort of help your kids to make your wealth that you've built up last more than three generations so essentially the we can only try by um, kind of training them and it's more it's day-to-day -day. first thing um which i think is the most important one is the the subconscious message we convey all the time uh, so if we are showing it to them the consumption culture is the be all and end all so new gaming console uh, new phones you know new designer clothes or new cars yes then without then no matter what we say to them they will our actions speak louder than the word so so one is by doing it um, um basically preaching what we basically practice uh, in a way in our with our, with our actions so having that non-consumption culture doesn't mean that we you live uh, you know from paycheck to paycheck but at the same time make sure you think one of the things i all my son is a little bit older so he he kind of you know understand we can have that discussion with him and actually i was having discussion a few weeks ago we went for a walk and i was going through your spreadsheet of uh what um i think your interview with dr emma Turnton at that time that if someone spent five pound on lunch every day in starbucks in the hospital canteen yeah. and you add it up to uh over 30 years um it adds up to you know thousands of pounds basically 137 thousand pounds yeah it just basically demonstrates the power of small savings and compound interest uh, yeah that graph gets a lot of interest exactly and then you say okay does, does it mean that i have to skip lunch no it means that if I be a little bit organized and make my lunch at home, that's where the saving comes in. And one of the things which I always, um, uh, about the subconscious learning, I, as a joke about our daughter when she was older, she came to me one day and she wanted to spend some money on in-app purchase. And she said, Daddy, I got this two pounds uh, from pocket money. Can I waste on in-app purchase? So. So I said, no, you can spend on it because it's your money. But I really like that she was thinking it's still a waste of money. So as long as I think one of the things we can impress on the children that whether you um, always ask yourself, do I need it or do I want it? And if the answer is that I need this thing, then you go and get it. And if you want it, then think, ask yourself, is it really something I want? So this is one thing we could do. And another thing which we uh, kind of more long-term one uh, for for all of us who have got children. And I was discussing with my, my partner. Um, and again, having a supportive partner is one of the most essential part um, that someone who can keep you in checks and balances, basically. Definitely. Uh, and and uh, yourself, I think uh, I was reading your story uh, was again very interesting. That you know, your your partner keeps you in making sure that you not buy too many bikes and uh, skateboards. But having yeah. that second balance is being there is um, it needs to be there between you need to work as a partner because 
if you open one tap uh, another tap is running all the time you know there's no way you can basically support that but one of the thing which we say that if we leave um, money for the children it needs to be in a such a way that they are able to access it once they become independent so they are not relying on so one of the thing we i advise and i'm working with my financial advisor actively on that so setting up the trust in a such a way that you know is there for them um but they have to be on independent you know make their own career first before they are able to access it so those are the two things i could suggest I mean there are a number of different ways and everyone's circumstances would be different but but passing our um day-to-day -day habits on them in terms of importance of saving and less consumption is one thing and also whenever we are saving um uh, leaving um inheritance for them when the time comes make sure they are not reliant on them they are not looking out for it it will be there for them when our time comes and we are no longer here but you know they are not watching out for uh, you know parents to pass away so they can um use the windfall so that's the thing i could um two things i can suggest yeah i mean it's something that i'm thinking about a lot at the moment trying to educate my kids um my daughter washed my car the other day and i gave her five pounds and uh she said i want to go and buy a, a unicorn magazine which was like four pound 99 i was like yeah no way like look if you invest that now in your stocks and shares iso account which she has uh, you can compound it over 30 years and in 30 years time you'll be able to buy 45 uh, unicorn magazines she was like yeah but i want one now i was like yeah good point like i've gone yeah. too far <laughs> you can buy the unicorn magazine and that's the great thing as doctors you know we talked a bit about fire which involves living extremely so financial independence retire early you know living extremely frugally as doctors we are you know paid more than the average so we don't have to live this extremely frugal life we just have to spend intentionally you know so think about like you said do you want it or do you need it like how much is that coffee at the station every day costing you and if you want to read about yeah 139000 pound hospital lunch bill it's in the ebook and it's based on real numbers and sensible compounding numbers it's it's real so yeah just think about how much things cost um okay and um the other thing that i wanted to talk to you a bit about so we've talked a bit about saving and building up cash flow essentially you know spending less than you earn um and that'll get you so far but uh, you've obviously uh, done some investing and things like that in the past uh, and i know that your investment philosophy sounds pretty similar to mine but let's um let's talk a bit about that shall we so you've saved up all this uh, wealth cleared down your debt developed good financial habits now what so essentially the the debt clearance was the first part right um be it a mortgage or in your case student loan because that's always a drag on and one of the again thing which resonated really nicely with me in the books is putting the right insurances in place because yep. When we are younger, it feels like invincible, right? But you know, it doesn't take much longer. Um, you know, anything can happen, and you want to make sure that you are leaving your loved ones in a safe uh, environment. So, very, very important for the doctors to 
put those simple, you know, I was fortunate. Um, I didn't know when I was working at NHS and, you know, you'd done great job in terms of highlighting that issue because not many doctors know. But when I moved into corporate environment in the pharmaceutical industry, luckily those insurances were already a part of the package, um, essentially, that, you know, you have a choice of salary protection, and the critical illness cover, et cetera. And, and because the, these companies have got 30, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 employees or even less than thousands of employees, they can go to these brokers and providers and have a deal which is very simple. So if any of the colleagues kind of interested in, you can always buy your practices or you, know, you can approach these brokers and get um, a very good deals um, as, a, as a partnership or as employees of the company. So that's one thing where that having that security net that if you do something um, untowards happen, that safety net is there for you and your loved ones. If you are unable to work or, you know, die um, or you lose your partner or yeah. any disaster that can yeah. happen. Uh, absolutely. I think as well, I'm glad that you mentioned that before investing because don't even think about investing before you've got you know, your your asset uh, of being a doctor is a tremendous asset that you need to protect. And if you couldn't afford your bills or your continue your current lifestyle without your income, if you got ill, you need to insure that asset. And um, I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that before we talked about investing, because yeah. if you haven't got insurances, don't even listen to what we're going to say about investing. Just stop, get the insurances, get the protection that you need, yeah. life insurance, income protection, critical illness. We got loads of information about this on Medics Money. And exactly. obviously, uh, yeah, so I'm really glad you mentioned that. So uh, yeah, you've done that and uh, you're all up insured. Uh, what next? And then essentially the, the point was that, you know, chasing the big dollars or uh, big news or doing, again, as we mentioned earlier, doing the simple thing right. And if you look at then, you know, um, I was fortunate that, you know, I loved educating myself. Uh, and as most doctors do, you know, we can take the complex matter and, you know, digest into um, um, simple information. So I was started educating myself for different options available. And what I transpired that if the first thing first, if I leave the money under the mattress or in my bank account, I'm going to make a loss in real time. So it's going to go down in purchasing value. So that's one thing which um, all medics needs to learn. I that think that's a really big point as well, you know, because, you know, uh, in this low interest rate environment that we found ourselves in for the last 10 years, you know, what, what Zahid has just said there is that if you leave your money in cash, it will be eroded. Its value will go down by inflation. And that might be a bit of a bombshell to some people listening. So that is a, that is a great point to make that uh, cash to a certain extent, is trash at the moment. Um, and so leaving it in the piggy bank like your parents told you to is not going to work. No. So that's unfortunate uh, um, situation we are in. And even with a high interest rate, inflation always erodes the value of the cash itself. And these changes happen. So, and the next then point is that, okay, what is the minimum I need essentially? So if I can then have enough gains from my investment, which saves me from erosion of inflation, that's the, the minimum I know I'll be happy with because at least my purchasing power is 
maintained, even if I'm not making huge gains on the investment itself. And then, and then after that, anything is bonus basically. And then simple, what I discovered that if I buy into a broader market, be it a property or um, low cost index funds, if I getting anything between five to 6% on average return, I should be more than happy after inflation because um, if I go and seek out, you know, some of the best chasing uh, fund managers and they might promise me uh, last couple of years uh, data and then look at their long-term record and they are no better than what the markets are delivering as a whole because you cannot, market is made up of all the investors out there. So you can't be better than everyone else out there. We seem to think we are, uh, we are very intelligent, and but that's one of the biases which um, kind of holds us back as a person, as well as as investor that we can't, we, we look at the biases and think, oh, it applies to Tom and doesn't apply to me because I'm better than that. And that doesn't work like that because in the end, we are, all have the same uh, biases which um, uh, everyone else has. So in order to have that um, um, fixed up, really helps basically that manage your expectation and then take from, take the simple boring returns of five, 6% after inflation, which is the market return, you should be more than happy to do that. And that's where um, the third part um, of that is, which I touched on earlier, is the having, keeping your cost down. And that comes down to the same thing which we discussed earlier from where we started, the outgoing. And that outgoing also applies to the costs of the investment. And most of these active managers, they are charging more than, again, your spreadsheet you can same compounding spreadsheet you can use for the cost for investment itself as well that even if you're paying uh, 0.25 percent for fund management cost versus 5.5 percent uh, suddenly if you look at the compounding that over 20 25 years you would be astounded to find out that how much money the fund manager is making irrespective of the fact that whether or not they are delivering you the return. So you are taking all the risks and they are taking the reward regardless of that. So the third thing which I always say to um, colleagues and friends who are interested in investment, keep the cost down. And it doesn't have to come at the price of, you know, the quality of your investments, but keeping it down is very, very important because that um, saves you a lot in the long term than the investment itself. I mean, I think that's the best sort of summary of investing philosophy uh, in, inside under 10 minutes that I've heard. And if some of that is new to you, we have loads of information about investing. We've got a podcast on it. We've got a webinar, which is on our YouTube. Uh, which explains these concepts in more detail. But essentially what Zaheer is saying is three tips are, you know, good investing is boring investing, you know, mediocre investing, yeah, averaging, aiming to capture the returns of the market 
at five to six percent is a perfectly valid uh, investment strategy and um I think you touched on it a bit there, but I sometimes see doctors that struggle with that because as doctors, we're highly motivated and intelligent, as you said, and um, we we struggle to aspire to mediocrity. No, none of us go into an exam thinking, I'm going to do a really mediocre job or go up to a patient and say, I'm going to do a really mediocre job on this one. But what Zahid is saying is that in investing, doing a mediocre job, i.e. capturing the returns of the market using a nice low-cost, well-diversified uh, index tracking strategy is a perfectly valid recipe. And indeed, trying to beat the market by thinking that you're better than the market it's, can lead to huge losses. And I do think um, some doctors struggle to aspire to mediocre investing. Boring investing is good investing. So that's a great tip. Um, and what you're saying there is, you're buying low-cost um, index funds, which are essentially uh, funds uh, which track the market. So we're not talking about buying individual shares. We're not talking about buying Tesla shares. If someone asks me, should I buy Tesla? It's like a it's like a massive warning signal that they they were they've got a lot to got to lot to learn. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the cost because. Um, yeah, you know, in the same way that your investment returns compound, which is good, uh, your investment fees also compound. And um, so it sounds like you're all in on um, low cost uh, index tracker funds, uh, aiming for mediocre returns, which over the long term is perfectly fine. You know, you don't go chasing uh, the latest thing or, or returns like that. Um, so that was just a great summary. Uh, very much chimes with um, what I've learned about investing. Uh, should we end on something really controversial like cryptocurrency? I mean, um, I'm, personally, I'm not against it. Uh, I haven't invested into it because I, I felt I, I don't know enough about it to make an informed decision at the moment. Obviously, Again, I look at that um, from two angles. So the one of the costs for investment is, as I mentioned, is the, the cost of the management fee of the fund holder, right? The other fee is the what HMRC will take from you. So essentially for us, um, the, the best thing I find is that HMRC will or the tax man will only take what when you realize it, right? So if it's getting invested into uh, an accumulator fashion and you're not tapping into those funds, it's not there and you can then wait for the right time uh, to supplement with your information. But in order to um, make use of these, be it Tesla or you know any um, cryptocurrencies you have to realize that income because obviously if it goes you bought it for 10,000 now it's 20,000 it doesn't mean anything right because um, it's all in in numbers right as soon you realize that realizing mean as, as soon as you realize your investment and then cash on it suddenly the tax man will come and they will take a big share of that. So the fund, then the platform will take their cost and the tax man will take their cost. And out of those 10,000, you are left with a fraction of that. So you didn't make much 
in the end anyway. So essentially that's the reason I do not invest into it because I it does not fit into my philosophy of holding it over a long period of time and then let the time take care of it in the end. Um, and if I find a way in the future that it's going to be there, yes, then you know I will definitely looking into investing uh, into cryptocurrencies. But at the moment, um, I, it's not there. But it doesn't mean that it might not work further. Uh, I still have to listen to your podcast on the blockchain and the advantages of that. I'm going through your uh, list of podcasts very slowly and well, sometimes listening to two or three times uh, before because there's so much information out there. However, um, if someone wants to invest into cryptocurrencies or any of the new uh, trends that are going along, my advice would be to learn about it. Do not chase the headlines and the numbers. If you want to do it, understand it and then know what the risks and rewards are, and then make sure when you go there with your eyes open rather than um, you know, hope and a prey. Yeah, it, it's very, very wise words. I mean, uh, Bitcoin and crypto is a very emotive uh, subject, and people often ask me about it. I mean, where I am with it is that uh, I have nothing against uh, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, whatever, but uh, it's an extremely volatile asset class, you know, extremely volatile. And... Um, I just don't want that kind of volatility in my portfolio. I want to set and forget. You know, I'm a doctor. I don't have time to be trading uh, cryptocurrency on the exchanges in order to realize the returns of what you just said. Uh, so my principal objection to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is that it is just too volatile. And maybe once I've got, you know, a massive portfolio, um, super high risk investments like that may form part of my portfolio, may. Uh, but if I was just starting out, if a doctor comes up to me and says, uh, I want to get started in investing, should I buy Tesla or Bitcoin? It's kind of a hand, head in hands moment. Uh, I give them the ebook and sit them down and have, a, you know, calm words, as you said, just don't go chasing those headline numbers. Uh, just get a nice solid strategy, which you perfectly outlined. Um, so yeah, that's where I am with Bitcoin. And I get loads of emails about Bitcoin, uh, mostly from people um, who are saying they've made millions in Bitcoin. Uh, no one seems to ever lose money on Bitcoin, which is funny. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so I don't know what's going on there. Eh? Uh, okay, thank you so much for your time today, Zahi. That was so informative. Um, We'll definitely, um, you sent me a list of books and uh, that you really rate. And uh, three of them that you sent are on my all-time list of books to read. So we should definitely record that episode once your voice has recovered and the antibodies are fully circulating. But I'm conscious that you've just recovered from COVID, which is great. So um, we'll wrap it up there. Now, I've been asking everybody uh, if they could go back in time, which you can't, obviously. But if you could go back to when you first started as a doctor, and give yourself some words of wisdom now, what would those words be? One would be to make sure that I continue to live within my means. So that would be um, my still advice. I mean, I'm sure we, um, <clears throat> again, with the hindsight bias, you know, we build our stories in a way which makes a good story, right? But, you know, we made all mistakes and there are mistakes. For example, in my case, when I um, started working for pharma, one of the things um, was there, which I did not take advantage of, 
is the employer contribution to the pension. So essentially, it's like free money that uh, up to certain extent, they say if you are pay up to say, for example, 6%, for example, uh, of my salary, then they will match that contribution and that will be tax free. So essentially, if my salary, just picking up a number was 50,000, then I made the contribution of 3,000, the company would have paid 3,000 pound free on top of my contribution. So one of the biggest mistake I made in earlier part of my younger days while working for um, in the pharmaceutical industry was not to take full advantage of that bit where basically I left free money on the table. Um, and I would, again, um, if I were to turn back the clock, I would go back and take advantage of that because that's on top of whatever the tax saving on your um, pension contribution from HMRC is there, this is going to be there. The second um, mistake which I made was um, not to maximize the ISA allowances earlier on. And part of that was to getting rid, rid of the mortgage and other debts we had. So there was a the right reason. But I feel that the way financial markets are going, as well as the way the capital gain tax reforms and after this huge uh, stimulus from, uh, from governments, they will have to claw back some of that money. And having use of these wrappers to the maximize um, the wrapping ability of um, ISAs is the best thing to do. And one thing I always advise, and uh, you do the same thing in the book, was to have that emergency fund there. So if you do have investment there, make sure you have something sitting as an emergency fund for, I would say, um, some people say three months, I would usually say at least six to six plus months. So, you know, especially if, even if your insurances are in place, usually if there is a deferred period, you don't relying on in that period and looking at other people so having that emergency. And that emergency fund doesn't have to be cash all the time. It could be your ISAs or could be other part of the saving which you can easily tap into if you need to. And if you don't need to, you can basically go and let them grow as they are. So that one thing, I, if I would turn back and if I were a junior doctor still there, it's like paying myself first, the term you use, and basically forget about it and then enjoy the life. And the third part, which I um, personally practice and would like to um, share with you and other listeners there that, you know, the fire is not a destination, it's a journey. And it's not like suddenly um, a point comes and you think I've got, for example, X million in the bank and I don't need to work and life wouldn't change anything. You have to enjoy the journey as much as reaching there. Otherwise, you get there if you are miserable going through that journey and then suddenly realize that, you know, oh God, what shall I do now with all that? Because you don't know anything otherwise. Then that's what's the point of that. So you need to have that enjoyment and day-to-day -day life with your family, with your work, have the maximum enjoyment in that. And then fire comes as a reward on, on a side rather than 
a goal itself. So you need to enjoy the process of that. Otherwise, uh, the happiness never comes. You keep on chasing that. Um, it keep like a mirage, keep running away from you. So these are the three things I would um, reinforce to my younger Zahid if I go back in time um, in 15 years ago. Yeah, I think that's really, you know, really sage words, never turn down free money, um, especially from your employer. So if you're in the NHS pension scheme, as you know, your employer contributes there. So have a think about that. Um, and uh, enjoy the journeys. Definitely very wise words. Oh, thanks so much for your time today, Zahid. It was so good to catch up with you. And um, we're definitely going to record a second episode uh, about recommended reading, because it's something that I get asked all the time. And I think you're going to have some really in good insights there. Uh, but we might let your vocal cords recover slightly from the uh, COVID experience that they've had. So thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. And I think there's some Thank amazing amazing nuggets uh, in there for all listeners that are listening to this about your uh, experiences that you've learned uh, you know on your amazing journey so far and uh, hope that you continue to get well and um, I really look forward to catching you up with you on the next uh, podcast that we do together which will be about uh, book reviews thank you Tom and then I will share my LinkedIn profile which you can put in the show notes so any physicians who are interested in moving to pharma or just wanted to have a discussion uh, please feel free to reach out to me via LinkedIn or via Doctors.net and I'll be more than happy to assist um, and guide um, whenever, uh, whichever way I can. Yeah, that's really kind. So I'll drop uh, your LinkedIn in the show notes so that people can connect with you on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks so much and take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye.